It is my privilege to introduce to you uh, Brother Chuck Monan uh, this uh, evening. Uh, before I do that, though, I also want to mention that there's another surprise uh, that we have here. Mark and Linda Hanstein are uh, some people I've known for a long time and are very dear to me. They go to a church in Carnes. He was at Bear Valley when I went to school there, and so I was uh, glad to see that they came with, uh, with Chuck and Susan here tonight, and be sure and get to meet them when you get the chance. Uh, but uh, Chuck and his wife Susan are here with us. Chuck is someone who I have known and listened to and appreciated for a long time. As a preacher, you don't get to hear a lot of other preachers too often, and with uh, the internet age in which we live, you have access to, to other preaching. And so, while I don't get to hear a lot of preaching in person, uh, I do sometimes scour the internet for people who I think are good preachers, and people who stir um, you know, some conviction and some thoughts in me, and, and who help contribute to my preaching. Uh, I don't know if they always know they're contributing to my preaching, but they do. And Chuck Monan is one of those people. Uh, he's someone who, uh, Anytime I hear him, I get ideas of things like, oh, that, that'd be wonderful to preach, or that's an excellent illustration, or sometimes uh, it's just he'll make a reference to a book, and I'll think, hey, I want to read that book, because I don't know of many preachers who I think are as avid readers as, as Brother Monan. He is one of the most well-read people that I know, and it comes across as he, as he preaches. He's also someone who is uh, deeply uh, committed to Scripture, who is a, a excellent uh, biblical exegete and someone who uh, I always learn more about the Word of God from his preaching as well. Um, he has been working with the Pinnacle Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas for uh, the last four years or so, or since 2018. Uh, prior to that, he's worked with churches in Michigan, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. He is also known as uh, the Pigskin Preacher. Uh, he's called that, uh, he uh, does a local radio show where he talks sports, and, uh, and uh, so he um, has a, I guess they say a face for radio is, is what I've, I've heard before. Um, but he's a gifted speaker and lecturer. Uh, he's conducted gospel meetings throughout the country. He's a contributing author to a couple of books uh, about preaching, uh, Redeeming the Times and To Preach Better, uh, both of which uh, are, are very good books uh, for, for preaching. So anyway, he's a preacher who uh, I have a lot of respect for. Uh, he's someone who I always enjoy getting to listen to, and I'm thrilled that we have him here tonight. So with no more ado, Brother Chuck. Preach the word. Let's open our Bibles together to Luke chapter 18. Verse 8 will be one of the texts that we'll be looking at together tonight. Um, part of my job as being the pigskin preacher, I'm on the radio uh, usually a few days a week, uh, each week in Arkansas, is we talk about college football a lot. We got any Tennessee Vol fans in here? Just out of curiosity, I see some. Um, I'm not going to say that line from WW and the Dixie Dance Kings, for those of you that remember that rather mediocre Burt Reynolds movie. I guess that's redundant. From the 1970s. Smokey and the Bandit was good. Uh, it was. But uh, uh, he asked this, this, this old man there, he said, how about those Tennessee Vols? And the old man glared at him, Travis, and he said, boy, I don't give a dog about no Tennessee Vols. So, uh, I, so I'm not saying that to you. I think you have a fine team. I just hope the next time you play Michigan, you get demolished. So uh, don't take that personally, <laughs> is what it is. Um, you know, I was a little nervous. Uh, I had lunch with the Bookouts. Just a wonderful couple. I'm so glad they've landed in this excellent city. I was told by some locals, 
Don't get up there as a tourist and say, I'm glad to be here in Maryville. He says, they don't pronounce it Maryville here. I said, well, how do they pronounce it? I said, Merville. I said, Merville? I said, yeah, Merville. And I thought immediately to, you know, a great denizen of Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you. Th thank you very much. So, uh, so you got that down. So uh, anyway, lovely place. I love the mountains, the lakes, everything. I'm not used to that color orange, but I've just been here a couple of days. Give it time. Maybe it will grow on me, Travis. We are here tonight to talk about the theme in front of you, understanding the times, which is not something that God's people have always been particularly good at. C.S. Lewis said this uh, over a generation ago. A cultural life will exist outside the church, whether it exists inside or not. To be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet enemies on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and betray our uneducated brethren who have, under God, no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. God's people weren't always clueless about how to influence the world and its culture. There's a wonderful passage all the way back. If we can get this to work here, Travis. There we go. You've got to turn the on button. All the way back in 1 Chronicles 12 and verse 32. Look at it. It says that David had, as his close friends and confidants, the men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Now, from all that we can tell about the Bible from this point forward, the men of Issachar were outliers. They were rather unusual in this regard, because by the time that Jesus shows up, there were a lot of folks that didn't know much of anything about anything. And the Lord basically addresses that. In Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, today it will be stormy, because the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In Luke 12, a similar passage when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you, you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blow, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you do not know how to interpret this present time? And then there is this gem from Luke 16 and verse 8. Jesus says the master commanded the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. That's so good it's worth saying again. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Some of you might remember a TV show, it was on years ago, called King of the Hill. Uh, Mike Judge, that same genius that brought us the movie Idiocracy, if any of you have seen that, 
If you haven't, just read the newspaper. It's, you're in the middle of it right now. Um, but anyway, uh, in one of the episodes on King of the Hill, Hank's son Bobby, and there, Hank's the big one, Bobby's the little one, joins a Christian rock band. Well, the old man just kind of shakes his head about this. And then he weighs in with this critique. He says, can't you see, son? You're not making Christianity better. You're just making rock and roll worse. And that's, um, if you've heard Christian rock, you know that the old man was telling the truth. There's a really interesting book called The Culturally Savvy Christian, in which Dick Staub offers some unbelievable analysis, which, if you could summarize it in a couple of sentences, this is probably how you would do it. He asserts that far too many Christians are at a loss for how to impact our culture and reach our world with the gospel. So instead, what we do is we panic and we retreat into our own subculture. I've heard people say, oh, I don't have any friends that aren't Christians. Well, you're doing it wrong. That's not what Jesus set us here to do. He put us in this world to be light and salt and leaven. And if all you do is get in a holy huddle with people who see the world and believe the same things that you do, you're missing out. You're not going to influence anyone. Jesus said he didn't pray that the Father would take us out of the world, but that he would leave us in the world but protect us from the evil one. And sometimes Christians miss this. So what people do when they retreat into this Christian subculture, well they usually end up in places that are inferior and virtually irrelevant in things like art and literature and the music it produces. Imagine someone that all they do is listen to Creed or watch Kirk Cameron movies or have Thomas Kincaid pictures in their house. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying 500 years from now, if the world continues, no one's going to be talking about those things. But isn't it interesting, people still go to the Sistine Chapel and see what Michelangelo painted on the ceiling. Okay, We need to understand that. Staub sees several problems with American culture as it currently represents. Number one, it is superficial. It is diversionary, mindless, and celebrity-driven. How many of you got tired of uh, hearing about the latest contretemps of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I turned on NPR, okay? That's, you know, the, where the eggheads listen to, you know, the hoity-toity stuff. First story, one day a couple of weeks ago, was the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard. I'm like, can I get away from this anywhere? I don't want to hear about these people. These people are basically ignoramuses and cretins who find and invent new ways to be horrible to each other. And I've got one son who's married, another son who's going to get married in a couple of weeks. I don't want them to think that that's the example. It's not. But that's what we see in this culture. And for some reason, they're held up and lionized. Look at those folks. Yeah, look at them. And don't be like them. Another thing that Staub says is that this is a culture that is spiritually delusional. We, we won't go into it, we don't have time for it, but uh, there were some researchers a few years ago that came up with something called Christian 
uh, moral therapeutic deism. And basically what it is, it's a new religion. It's not Christianity, but it's the religion that says all you have to do is be a good person. That's all God cares about. And of course, a good person is however you define it. No, that's not all that God cares about, but that's what's being sold uh, to our culture as a bill of goods. The other problem with the culture, it's basically soulless. It's not sustained by art, not by things that are aesthetically beautiful, but by the mad pursuit of profit. Everything is about money, 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 and how we can make more money. So because of such problems with popular culture, Christians tend to react to it in one of three ways. They either cocoon, which says we're just going to be over here by ourselves and have nothing to do with anybody, which doesn't work. Or they say we're going to be busy combating it. Everything that we do, we're going to fight. Fight, fight, fight. You know, uh, Starbucks declared war on Christmas, so I'm going to boycott Starbucks. Yeah, good luck with that. You know, it's probably not going to work. Others say, well, we're just going to conform. You can't beat them, join them, so I'm all in. Whatever the culture's doing, I'm going to do. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. You don't want to give in to the ways of the world. Because do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Remember that. But there's another way. There's a fourth way that we need to seize. We can transform the culture. There's a good example of what this might look like in modern times with the Oxford Don C.S. Lewis. Lewis understood the times in which he lived about as well as anyone, which is why newspapers in London were fighting with each other to get him to write in their pages, because everything he had to say had something intelligent and wise to say to their country. He countered culture by challenging its false claims. He communicated within the culture by having conversations with others who saw things differently. He wasn't afraid to engage in dialogue with people who didn't share his views. And he ultimately changed culture by creating more of it, by producing art and literature that glorified God and ennobled mankind. Lewis was not necessarily the prototype of this, but rather he was following in the footsteps of believers in God through the centuries like Bach, Mendelssohn, Dante, Dostoevsky, Newton, Pascal, and Rembrandt. Individuals whose genius and work lifted up God and in the process enriched the cultural milieu. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's, that's great, Chuck, but I'm probably not going to compose music like Bach. I'm not going to paint like uh, Rembrandt. I'm not going to write like Dostoevsky. So what role can I play in this? Well, there's an answer to that. The Bible contains a wonderful role model for all of us to emulate in meeting culture head on and turning it and transforming it. And you know him. You've read a lot of his work. The Apostle Paul. Early church leader Tertullian asked the question, what has Athens 
to do with Jerusalem. In other words, what does culture have in common with the church? What does the secular world have in common with the spiritual world? Well, sometimes more than you might imagine. In Acts 17, Luke records some of the events surrounding Paul's visit to Athens. And in this exchange that Paul has with these intellectuals, he answers this question. Secular culture and Christian culture can indeed have some moments of shared commonality. And as Paul interacts with this rather secular audience, he leaves some important lessons to all of us to help us reach and transform our culture. Here are several steps that Paul takes that you and I can implement in our own lives and in the life of the church. Number one, know the zeitgeist. You didn't realize there was going to be German vocabulary tonight in the lesson. Well, that's just one of those great Scrabble words. Zeitgeist literally translates as the spirit of the times or the spirit of the age. If you want a more expansive definition, here it is. Zeitgeist is the general cultural, intellectual, ethical, and spiritual climate of a nation or a group. It is the general ambiance, the morals, the socio-cultural direction or mood of an era. If you know the zeitgeist, you know what's going on. You know what is trending. You know what people are thinking. You know how people generally see things. Well, it's not for nothing that God appointed the Apostle Paul to be the one who is the messenger of the gospel to the Gentile world. As Paul goes into Athens, Athens is the intellectual capital of the ancient world. And Paul wanders in, and he's not out of place. Paul understands the zeitgeist of Athens. He knows the language. He's fluent in Greek. He knows the schools of philosophy, such as the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Cynics. He knows what differentiates one group from, from another. He knows what they believe. He knows what they stand for. He's familiar with the religion. He knows the Greco-Roman gods. He knows the stories behind them. He knows the prevailing morality of the culture, or, or in this case, the lack thereof, because they're not a particularly moral people. Paul, in other words, is not a missionary traveling to a place he knows nothing about, where he can't speak the language, and where he's completely ignorant of the cultural milieu. That's the way a lot of missionaries are sent out these days. And then we wonder, I can't believe they're not having more success. Why would they? That's not the kind of missionary that Paul was. Centuries before Paul visited Athens, there was a philosopher by the name of Diogenes who lived there. This is kind of an artist rendering. The thing I like about him, he always went with a dog everywhere he went. That would be me. I was talking with my wife the other day. Can I get one of those fancy vests for my dog Mavis so everywhere I go I could bring Mavis with me? Would that have been a problem if I brought Mavis up here? I, I didn't. Yeah, some places are kind of sketchy on dogs. I, anyway, Diogenes had a dog with him everywhere he went. But that wasn't what he was remembered for. 
He was remembered for being bitterly critical of Athenian society. He was always pointing out its flaws, its shortcomings, its hypocrisies. And the people didn't particularly appreciate it. He says the people here are so worthless that he started carrying around a lantern. You see it in his right hand there. They said, what's the lantern for? He said, I'm looking for an honest man, and I haven't found one yet. You can imagine they didn't appreciate that. Well, when they said, well, why do you say such bad things about our city? You're an Athenian. You shouldn't criticize your own culture. And this is what Diogenes said. He said, I'm not a citizen of Athens. I am a citizen of the world. The Apostle Paul would have understood that. He grew up in Tarsus, but he was going to be at home anywhere he went, and he recognized that his job was to, was to claim every inch of territory everywhere he went for God. That's what he was doing. So if you want to impact the culture, know something about what's going on. Educate yourself. Know the zeitgeist. Here's the second thing that you can do. Give a compliment. When Paul comes into Athens, he sees that the city is full of idolatry. Idols on every corner. There's a temple here. There's a statue there. There's an altar over there. And he recognizes that these people are just up to their necks in pagan mythology. So what does he do? Does he start beating them over the head with Bible verses, such as, you shall have no other gods before me, or you shall not make for yourself an idol, or an idol is nothing at all in the world. Those are Bible verses, Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. He could have said those, he knew them, but that's not what he does. What does he do? He gives them a compliment. Look at it. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Why do you think they listened to what he said? Because the first thing that he said was a compliment. He said something nice about them, something flattering. How many times when we want to go ahead and change somebody, do we have to first point out all the things that they're doing that are wrong? All the things that they believe that are not in harmony with the Scripture. Is there any shortage of those things? No, there's plenty of them. How would you respond if somebody comes up and the first thing they say to you is something that insults you? Are you going to be more prone to listen to anything they say after that? Of course not. Sometimes we miss that. Usually even people with whom we have sweeping disagreements, we can find something good about them. We've got a young man that we're supporting at our congregation who's doing mission work in Greece among the refugees. A lot of them are from war-torn countries like Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and different places. He's already baptized several Muslims. Muslims. 
I asked him how he was able to do that, and he said, well, we find some areas of commonality. I believe in one God. They believe in one God. They try to live moral lives. I try to live a moral life. They love their families, and they stand by the, their spouses and marriage and their children. I do that. See, he's finding common ground. I'd guarantee you there's someone that you live with, that you live uh, by, a family member, a work colleague, schoolmate, that you would like to teach more about Christ. Find some things that you agree about first. You know, you'll eventually get to things you don't agree about, but don't lead with that. Give a compliment. That worked in Paul's time, it'll continue to work in our time. Here's a third way that we can impact our culture and the people around us. Know God. Paul could tell these people about God because he knew God. How can you describe someone you don't know? You can't. How can you explain something that you know little to nothing about? You won't. Paul tells them some things about God. He goes through and sees these wonderful temples. He says, God doesn't need anything like that. He doesn't need a house to keep the rain off his head. He doesn't need anything to eat for dinner. All this already belongs to him. Because he made it all. And everything is his. He is in charge, and he wants us to seek him. There's a passage in Jeremiah, and Paul would have known this. This is what the Lord said. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Can I tell you something? This is my fourth decade of preaching. I think I've been preaching longer than you've been alive, Travis. I am really, really old. I just felt all the weight of those years just this moment. As old as I get, I get a thrill every time I'm around a brother or sister in Christ who really knows God and who's walked with him for many years. I've always appreciated that. The older I get, the more I appreciate that. Nothing against the young people. I love being around young people. I love their energy, their vitality, their optimism. Those are great things. But they haven't lived through anything. They haven't faced anything. I love to be with the veteran Christians who have been faithful to the Lord year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. That's what the prophet's talking about here. You want something that's worthwhile? Someone that needs to be feted? Someone who needs to be recognized? Let's talk about those people who know God. That should matter. It doesn't so much in modern America, but it matters to God's people. And it always should. You want to have something to offer other people? Know God. Be different. And when they come and ask you, well, tell me about... How have you guys managed to stay married? Why is your family intact? Why do you seem to have a purpose? Why do you have optimism when things are going so haywire? Tell them. It's not me. 
I know the Lord. Tell them that. That always matters. And it will increasingly matter as the world spins off its axis more and more and more in the years to come. Here's a fourth characteristic that Paul... Paul puts this into practice about as well as anyone ever has. Speak the language. And by speaking the language, I don't mean that, that Paul could reach the Athenians because he was bilingual, uh, although he was. He could speak Hebrew, he could speak Greek, he knew Aramaic, he probably had a smattering of other tongues in there as well. But what I mean by that is this. He was bilingual in the sense that he not only understood the Jewish world, he also understood the Gentile world. He knew the Greek world. You want evidence of that? Here's a couple of famous ones, and you might not have even realized it. This sound familiar? For in him we live and move and have our being. Or, we are his offspring. I've met some folks in the church that think these words are Paul's. They're not. Eratus is the one that said that. Going back a little bit, that was Epimenides. Paul is quoting these immensely popular Greek or Cretan poets. They were the equivalent of ancient rock stars. They would have been, you know, the musicians that sell 100 million records, or John Grisham that writes all kinds of books that people read. That's what these folks were in their time. I don't have any doubt in my mind that if Paul were living today, he'd occasionally throw in a quotation from Bob Dylan, or Bono, or Bruce Springsteen. I hear people, no, Paul wouldn't. Yes, he would. That's what he was doing when he quoted Epimenides and Eratus. Paul was recognizing that what these men said in that context was true. And if something's true, it belongs to God. And Paul was claiming that territory for God. Think of the instant connection that Paul was going to have in quoting heroes of this ancient audience. To me, it is reminiscent of something that I watched live on television on June the 29th, 1990, at Tiger Stadium in Detroit, Michigan. This man, Nelson Mandela, had just been freed from three decades of hard labor in a prison in South Africa on Robben Island. He had now been freed by the South African government, and he was going around the world to raise money for his African National Congress. One of his first stops was in Detroit. I still remember what he said. I can't remember many sermons I've heard uh, 30 years later, I remember. But I remember this. He said, Mother, Mother, there's far too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. Anybody remember where that's from? It's from a Marvin Gaye song that was written in Detroit. Nelson Mandela was in Detroit quoting the poets of Detroit. 
How do you think the 50,000 people in that stadium responded? It was like an electric shock went through that stadium as people roared their approval. If we want to get a hearing from people in the world today, we have to show them that we don't hate the world. We actually love the world. We don't love all the things in the world, but we love the people in the world. And we're for something. We're for things that are good. We're for things that are fair, that are just, that are beautiful. You know, there's so many Christians. That, that's not the kind of faith that they have. What, what do we do? We point out things that are wrong in the world. And, and, you know, there's a lot wrong with the world. You know that. I know it too. But they want to know, are we for anything? Do we stand for something? How many times have you heard someone define their Christianity by the sum total of the things that they don't do? Or the things they're, are you a Christian? Yes. I don't drink, smoke, or swear. Together, golf club. That's good. I don't want you to drink. I don't want you to smoke. And, you know, swearing, you know what Mark Twain said about it. He said, when, very, when angry, count four. When very angry, swear. No, don't swear. You don't want to do that. But here's the point. Is there anything else in the world that is defined in negative terms? You want to define things in positive terms. I remember listening to this man. I thought, I don't know that I have a lot in common with Nelson Mandela, but I felt like as a resident of Michigan, he at least was making an attempt to understand me. If you want people to understand you, if you want them to listen to you, know something about their world. Speak their language. It'll make a difference. And finally, number five, you want people to listen to you, tell the truth. There is a deficit of truth in today's world. Paul laid it on them, whether they were ready to hear it or not. Listen to what he says here in Acts 17. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. They were basically with Paul up to this point. But this was going to be a problem. That's not generally what they believed. But Paul tells them, he says, God has not judged you yet in worshiping false gods. He says, you've done this out of ignorance. But time is running out, and we all have a date with destiny that we're going to meet. And you need to know something. The world will stand before God at the judgment, and you don't believe that? The one that judges us will be the very one that he raised from the dead. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. You realize that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is proof that God is in control. We need to be reminded of that. 
Because sometimes we forget. We see the world, and it's going crazy, and we think, well, man, well, you know, how can things be like this? Things are like this now. But one day, one day, they will be different. Because God is in control. When Paul told them the truth, you know how they responded? The Bible says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Eh, dead people don't come back to life. Yes, they do. Some are still sneering today. Tim Keller said something years ago that was really interesting. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching or not, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's what matters. Ultimately, that's going to be the only thing in this world that matters. Do you believe that Jesus is God's Son and that he rose from the dead? When Paul writes to the Romans, he says, Don't you understand that all of you have been, who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him in baptism. That just as God raised Jesus from the dead, that we too will be raised to walk in newness of life. That is what our culture needs to hear. Because that's the only place in this world, ultimately, where you find hope. There's not hope anywhere else. But there's hope in Christ. Susan and I took a couple from our congregation out to dinner last Friday night. Steve and Jane, interesting couple. Steve was an old Marine. Tough, crusty, I mean, just didn't have a lot of use for God. Grew up in a Christian family, but you know the story. He went off and graduated high school and joined the Marines and kind of got involved in some things he probably would have been better off leaving alone. And then finally comes back and he finds a trade and gets a job and finds a wife and, and they've been together ever since. And the church didn't have any role in his life. Lord didn't have any place in his life. Till a year ago. I remember this really well. His sister, who was about as good a woman as God put on this earth, had been battling ovarian cancer for about the last seven years. She was at the end of the line. She'd been everywhere. There wasn't anything they could do. She'd been down to MD Anderson in Houston, and they couldn't do anything else. They said, we've run out of options. So they told her those words that nobody wants to hear. Basically, go home, set your affairs in order, because you've got about four months left. She went and she loved her husband, loved her two daughters, her grandkids, her church family. But she did something special with her brother. Her brother, who had not been coming to church since he left the house, joined the Marines, and went off to make his way in the world. The last week of her life, he came over to visit her. It was going to be the last time that he saw his sister alive. And she says, Steve, I'm going to miss you. You've been a good brother to me, and I'm glad that we've been 
we've been family all these years. But I got to tell you something. She said, I know where I'm going. I was baptized into Christ years ago. I've done the very best I could to live for him. And I'm going to claim all of those promises that are all based on the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm going to heaven. Then she looked at me and she said this. If you keep living the way that you're living, I'm afraid you're not going. You need to make some changes. You need to put Christ on in baptism. And you need to start living for him. I want to see you again. And I'm asking you to do that. Will you do that? And he said, Karen, yes, I will. I've been thinking about that and I need to do it. We buried her on a Friday. I baptized Steve and his wife on that Sunday. They've hardly missed a Sunday since the last year. Karen died on Father's Day a year ago. And I looked at him the other day. I was waiting for my plate of etouffee, and he was waiting on his hamburger. I said, Steve, your sister would be proud of you. I know she would. I said, there's something more important than that, though. God's proud of you. Because you stepped up and you did what you were supposed to do. Do you realize we can tell the truth? Maybe not everybody wants to hear it, but I'm convinced most people do. What Jesus say, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Maybe you're with us tonight, and you need to embrace the truth that is personified in Jesus of Nazareth. Friend, only through his death, burial, and resurrection does anyone have hope in this world and in the world to come. But when you obey the gospel in faith, repentance, and baptism, God washes your sins away. He gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit to live or to dwell within you. And you become an heir to all of the promises that Jesus leaves behind for us. Friend, if you're here tonight and you need to obey the gospel of Christ, if you need to come back to the Lord and be restored, the invitation of Jesus is calling. If you're ready to answer, we ask you to come as we stand, as we sing.